Hello and welcome to VetCast. Um, today we're going to be looking at Kirby's Rule of 20. This is something you probably have, most of you have heard of. Um, but it's aimed at um, small animal practitioners, again, very much like myself. I work in a um, first opinion, one vet practice for the vast majority of my time. Um, but at the weekends or if I pick up extra shifts here and there, then um, I can work either in an emergency and critical care session. Um, section um, or managing the hospital in one of our um, clinic's main centres. Um, and so for me, the Kirby's Rule of 20 helps me manage those critical care cases um, and just remind myself and make sure there's a kind of a checklist side of things to make sure that I'm addressing all of those patients' concerns. So for those of you that don't know too much about it, um, here is here is a rundown of it. Um, importantly, it, this podcast is by no means a, a a reference for matching what's available in specialist care settings. Um, there are some um, increasingly available specialist critical care settings. More a general practitioner who wants to do a really good job with a, a critical care case that that walks in through their door. Um. So just talking through the um the background behind it, Kirby was a um nurse who came up with this rule of twenty um as a as a checklist to um make sure that you're addressing all of that patient's needs. So just to run through the twenty um there. Fluid balance, albumin levels, glucose levels, uh, electrolytes and acid base um side of things making sure we've got oxygenation, looking at the patient's consciousness, their blood pressure, um, their cardiovascular system, they're maintaining their temperature, keeping an eye on the coagulation um, for any anemia, looking at the renal function, managing any infections, monitoring GI motility, reviewing and checking drug dosages, checking nutrition levels, addressing pain management, wound care, bandages, that sort of thing, um, the the nursing care, the everyday care, um, and looking at um, a little bit of TLC for that patient, also vitally important. Um, so this is something that can be equally valuable for both vets and nurses to make sure that they're addressing um, there. So first of all, looking at fluid balance, um, the aim basically to ensure that we've been um, providing sufficient perfusion um, and sufficient hydration. And this is the mainstay for a vast number of our critical care cases. Perfusion, importantly, is that intravascular volume, whereas hydration is that interstitial volume. Um, so perfusion, just remembering, um, we're looking at heart rate, mucous membrane, colour, pulse quality, mentation blood pressure, urine output, blood lactate, all of those sort of things to, to assess their perfusion levels. Um, that's something that we want to address rapidly and that's your um, initial hour or two's worth of, of fluids at quite high rates to get um, that intravascular volume back up um, often when they're first presented as um, unwell critical care cases. Hydration measured slightly 
differently, looking particularly at skin turgor, um, mucous membrane moistness, corneal moistness, um, and monitoring things like body weight. You can, you know, very clearly see, you know, patients that you've seen a few days before, you can clearly see they've had a sudden weight loss in a very short period of time. Um, and usually that is um, fluid. Those interstitial um, hydration deficits need to be um, addressed more gradually over one to two days. Um, you, know, you can have a little look at all these things. You know, they're a whole lecture in themselves. This is just a very quick run through things to remember when you're in that critical set session and you're reviewing your um, your hospitalised patients. Um, so number two, albumin levels. Aim, your aim is to um, try to restore or maintain albumin as close to normal levels as you can. Um, studies have shown that low levels of albumin have been associated with a poorer prognosis. Um, and so we want to look at assessing that blood albumin levels um, as much as we can. They can reflect loss both in the vasculature um, as well as interstitial losses. Um, and losses can occur from blood loss, renal disease, gastrointestinal disease, or SIRS-like processes can cause the vasculature to become leaky. Um, it's also important to remember that it's a um, negative acute phase protein. Normally thinking of other acute phase proteins like um, that that go up um, when when there is infection, but with albumin, it actually the production levels drop during critical illness. So um, it is something we need to address there. Um, often we're looking at restoring this um, with plasma transfusions. Um, however, because of loss into the interstitial space because there is a true deficit in um, albumin levels. Sometimes you can need multiple units and regularly in order to um, to get the levels back up to, to where you, you need. Um, and finding multiple units of plasma can be a tricky thing. Um, there are some um, canine albumin products now available um on the market so those ones might be more cost effective um with less total volume but i have to be totally honest um they're not something that i have used in in general practice if anyone out there has used them i'd love to hear um about your experience of them um let me know have they been helpful successful any side effects um that would be great to hear about um the other thing that we can use if if we haven't got um, albumin itself, um, but we need to maintain that oncotic pressure, um, is using synthetic colloids. Um, and that used to be very much the thing, but these days most of the studies have shown that um, providing synthetic colloids in the vast majority of cases um, don't improve outcomes and that crystalloids are the way to go. And certainly synthetic colloids... Um, can provide that synthetic pull but not provide any of the the drug or hormone transport roles um that albumin contributes to and um and so not not as helpful um glucose levels so that's number three um obviously we want to try and keep our patients normoglycemic as as much as possible um first of all looking at um high levels, mainly a problem in diabetic animals um, where levels are needed to be controlled to prevent or treat 
ketoacidosis, and obviously this is a subject all in itself. Um, but it's important to remember that transient hyperglycemia can also be present, particularly after um, severe stress, such as following trauma. Um, and there's certainly no evidence that trying to bring those transient hypoglycemias back down to normal levels um, can be helpful. In human patients in intensive and critical care settings, there has been some work on um, trying to keep glucose levels down with um, head trauma patients. But this is when they're in very fine um, tuning induced coma settings. And I don't think that's appropriate at this stage to be to be managing our patients quite as tightly as as that. Um, hypoglycemia is something much more um, relevant for our critical care cases. Um, it's a definite risk for patients um, that are septic, um, that have very poor nutrition levels. Um, obviously, they're very young or small. You, you see those with portosystemic shunts, um, severe liver disease, some neoplasias, um, Addison's, or even again, your diabetics where there's been a iatrogenic insulin administration um, there. And certainly you want to, to look at supplementing that um, where necessary, usually with IV dextrose, but make sure that it is um, diluted adequately um, there. Um, so next one, number four, um, electrolytes and acid base balance. Um, one of the big electrolytes we worry about in critical care is potassium. Um, very commonly, um, we see hypokalemia um, and our most common crystalloids, um, all of them are, are slightly low on the potassium level. So if they're low to start with, that can often not help the situation. Certainly hypokalemia causes lethargy um, and it's usually caused by um, gastrointestinal renal losses or um, poor intake. Um, and so considering spiking the, the fluids can be helpful. Um, hyperkalemia is obviously extremely important, can cause bradyarrhythmias, so start thinking of that if um, you're hearing any abnormalities um, there, and can be immediately life-threatening. Um, the moderate levels um, may be able to be treated with um, intravenous fluid therapy washout, um, but the more severe cases certainly should be considering insulin and calcium gluconate therapy. Um, one alternative, some people like this, others prefer to, to not to insulin, um, is actually to treat with glucose. Um, the glucose causes endogenous insulin release. Um, that insulin um, then causes the exchange of potassium at the cell level so that the potassium is pulled into the cells and out of the, um, of the bloodstream there. Um, importantly, it's obviously also important to address that underlying cause. Um, also, looking at the acid-base balance, we can look at measuring the anion gap to see what that acid-base balance is doing. Um, I'm just going to talk about the most common here, uh, metabolic acidosis. Um, really, really common, often seen alongside an increase in, in lactate. The majority are treated um, with just rapid fluid resuscitation and oxygenation. So if you're treating those basics, the, the metabolic acidosis will sort itself out. Um, 
but again it's worth being aware of because if it persists um so for example if you've got a uremic patient or a ketoacidotic patient um then sometimes treating with bicarbonate can be a helpful thing to do oxygenation obviously we want to make sure that our patients are adequately oxygenated um and your pulse oximeter can be a really helpful thing particularly on your more recumbent patients um here and you certainly want to be intervening if that uh, spo2 is dropping 95 or below um the other thing again on your very critical patients that you can monitor is um uh using your catmograph um you can measure the end tidal co2 um through an you know if there's a nasal catheter in and it and that roughly correlates with your arterial carbon dioxide um again with oxygenation all sorts of ways that it can be delivered um your nasal catheters or oxygen tents oxygen um kennels even as simple as cling film over the front of the kennel with a um a tube of um oxygen being delivered straight into that area importantly just to remember that the temperature tends to go up in those kennels um in that situation so you um you may need to keep an eye on that or or combine it with some ice packs or something like that in in with those patients next thing to look at is consciousness um we want to look at assessing consciousness initially with a modified glasgow coma scale um, and certainly if it is abnormal or it seems to be changing, then you want to be um, measuring that um, coma score on a regular uh, basis and investigate those causes of the changed mentation. Um, lowered mentation can be caused by metabolic causes, so hypoglycemic or hepatic encephalopathy, um, low or high blood pressure, shock, that sort of thing. Um, but also, obviously, be aware, raised intracranial pressure, so a haemorrhage, edema, um, actual primary brain disease, ischemia, any of those can be causing that intracranial pressure to be to be going up. And that should be, um, you know, ringing through your head if, if you've got a change in mentation. Um, but also remember things like side effects of the drugs that you've given. Um, it's very important not to... Um, attribute it to to the underlying disease if if you've given a whole load of drug drugs that could have been affecting that um if you do suspect an increased intracranial pressure one simple thing that you can look at doing is elevating the head 15 degrees um that can really help um stop that pressure building up and can be you know a very simple cheap thing that can significantly improve outcomes there for you Um, blood pressure in our critical care cases um, the majority of the ones that you will face in that circumstance is um, hypotensive um, and we want to be aiming to maintain a min minimum systolic blood pressure of greater than 90 millimeters of mercury um, if they are hypertensive and we're assuming normal heart function here we want to treat them with um, fluids oxygenation pain control and often that will get things under control if they are unresponsive to that treatment consider other things consider their glucose their acid base um what's their liver kidneys doing any ongoing fluid losses um 
you know, are they still hemorrhaging somewhere? Have they got Addison's? Have they got heart disease? Start thinking about what the cause is of um, that low blood pressure. Um, then obviously assessing the heart side of things. So, you know, maybe there is some, some heart disease. Certainly very regularly whilst that any patient is in with us, we want to be um, monitoring um, both the heart rate and the heart rhythm um, and ensuring that stays within appropriate levels. Um, certainly any arrhythmias should be assessed using an ECG. Um, they can occur due to a, a SERS response, um, splenic disease, organ torsion, you know, your GDVs, things like that, as well as electrolyte imbalances, and then obviously your underlying heart disease. Um, not all of them will require treatment, but you want to be monitoring to make sure that nothing is worsening. Um, but certainly if you're getting multiform arrhythmias or clinical signs um, showing that there's poor perfusion, so a weak pulse or low blood pressure, then that is when you want to be looking at intervening um, there. Temperature. We want to be regularly monitoring the temperature throughout the day in critical patients. Um, our critical patients, we you know, frequently see both raised and lowered temperatures. Um, and certainly severe increases in temperature above 40.8 um, can cause severe complications, um, such as the SERS response, DIC and multi-organ failure. Um, and so practical physical aids can really help just bring that temperature back down to um, a more manageable level. So simple things such as wet towels, fans, ice packs, or even um, surgical spirit being used to cool the pores um, there can be really, really helpful. Um, hypothermia, very common, obviously, after anaesthesia. Um, but also we see it fairly commonly in cases of shock. Um, and we need to look at trying to address that, get all the... Um, the enzymes working as well as possible, um, but also in severe systemic disease, especially cats. So it's a poor prognostic factor in in those cats with if that temperature is low. We want to look at trying to address that, warm that patient up um, a little bit. Coagulation levels. Obviously, we have the cases where um, the actual underlying illness is a coagulopathy of of some sort and again they are um like your rodenticides or snake bites they're something to to think about in their own right but with critical care patients of all types then you know we want to be looking at detecting DIC in particular um at its earliest stage um to basically to try and slow ideally completely prevent its progression um DIC develops after any period of um, basically vascular stasis in the, the body. So shock, trauma, um, when the tissues are exposed to, to very intense inflammatory mediators, um, such as during the SERS state. Initially, the body goes through a hypercoagulable state um, and all the coagulation factors are sent out there into the body. Um, so it causes clots all over the body at, at that stage. Um, it's only once those um, clotting factors have been used up, you then end up um, in the 
hypocoagulable state where um bleeding very very easy so certainly if you suddenly have clots that are developing you want to be suspicious keep a high index of suspicion there in particular pulmonary thromboembolisms um so definitely should be suspected when there's significant hypoxemia even though your x-rays are are pretty minimal very minor changes on them um and if you see this state you want to be looking at um treatment with plasma products to to try and counter um this side of things anemia we want to be monitoring that side of things um we want to be maintaining adequate red blood cells to enable the perfusion of tissues um not all anemias require treatment but if they are anemic we should be monitoring this um they will require treatment once signs of lethargy weakness raised heart rate respiratory rate um, and the blood pressure starts to to drop um this will happen, these clinical signs will happen much quicker in the acute cases than the chronic cases. Um, and so we may need to intervene with um, blood transfusions of some type. Um, we don't have the evidence in our cats and dogs, but certainly in humans, conservative transfusion management um, has been shown to have better outcomes than aggressive transfusion management so basically trying to get your pcv up to a level of about 20 percent rather than trying to get it back up completely to normal levels at 30 percent the other thing that uh can be worth just um having a thought in the back of your head are the slightly more unusual ones of uh methemoglobinemia and the carbon monoxide poisoning so causing either the muddy colored gums or the the brick red uh, gums when you have those then you get poor oxygen delivery despite your red blood cells being at normal normal level so just being aware of that um, kidney function throughout the stay we want to be looking at um, keeping an eye on urea, creatinine levels, electrolytes, phosphorus, um, monitoring urine output. All of this can help us keep an eye on what those kidneys are doing. Um, normal urine output, one to two mils per kilo per hour. So um, 25 to 50 mils per kilo per day. Um, obviously, the ideal way to do it is by measuring directly using indwelling catheters, but most of the time that isn't possible. Um, and so weighing um, outputs can be a really, really helpful way of doing it. Um, weighing what's in inco pads and weighing litter boxes. Very simple and easy way to, to keep an eye on what's going on. Um, infections. Obviously, we want to be treating any, you know, primary infections that are, are going on but we also want to be preventing um infectious agents spreading between um the patients and preventing any nosocomial infections whilst they're there so simple things making sure you're remembering to wash your hands between patients and considering the need for isolation in certain cases um, also just again ensuring that Genuine aseptic techniques are used for all appropriate procedures. So 
swabbing IV ports with alcohol, um, making sure that when catheters are placed that, you know, a really good aseptic technique is, is used. Um, also importantly is a, a hospital-wide antibiotic protocol. Um, this means that everyone in the clinic is using um, the same antibiotics when they are using antibiotics on an empirical basis um, and that there is a, a plan for um, when you would step up antibiotic use to the, um, to the second or third line antibiotics. Um, obviously trying to use culture and sensitivity as much as you possibly can. Um, all of this reduces the risk of developing resistant organisms in the, the hospital environment. So gastrointestinal motility. Um, we want to be aiming to maintain GI motility and mucosal integrity throughout a, a patient's stay whilst they're critically ill. Um, all critically ill patients, even without primary gastrointestinal disease, are prone to, to ileus or um, atony there. And so we want to be monitored by listening for bowel sounds regularly. Um, and very often we have to, to treat for this. So very commonly metoclopramide um, is used because it's both anti-emetic and prokinetic um, there. But also cisapride and ranitidine are also um, useful motility modifiers. Um, Meropotent used very frequently as an anti-emetic. Um, but also don't forget things like nasogastric tubes, which can help with the decompression of accumulated gas and fluid. Um, and can be a really, really helpful um, tool in certain patients. Also think of um, ulceration. Um, it's certainly a risk in any patients that have been hypotensive or have got um, underlying liver or kidney disease, um, as well as with certain um, drug toxicities um, or drug side effects. Um, so your non-steroidal or steroids um, there so considering treating those with histamine 2 antagonists such as ranitidine or famotidine um, as well as proton pump inhibitors such as omeprazole um, sacrelfate can also be useful that can be um, used to bind the erosions there all patients with this every day they should be um, have their drug dosages reviewed um, obviously hopefully these will done carefully the first time that they were calculated but that isn't enough to to just rely on that first count obviously mistakes can happen but actually you know the doses just may change over time with the change in that patient's condition um the patient's weight might change which changes the the amount of drug that is needed or as the condition deteriorates it may change the um, appropriate dose such as if there is decreasing kidney or liver function um, or if the protein levels are changing um, protein bound products might need a slightly different dose nutrition levels again every day we should be looking at the nutrition how much has our patient got um, how much do we think that they're going to be able to take in over the next 24 hours? We want to be aiming to maintain that patient's nutritional requirements whilst they are unwell. Um, if left unmet, then 
gastrointestinal dysfunction, um, reduced wound healing, poor organ function, all of those can um, occur. And so if they're not eating, we want to consider nasogastric or esophageal tubes put in at an early stage um, to, to aid nutrition. Certainly, if doing any other procedures um, early on, um, it is sometimes worth considering placing these tubes whilst the patient is sedated rather than waiting for a few days down the line um, to to put them in at that stage when an owner might be more reluctant to sedate or anaesthetise them a second time round. Um, Metazapine is a serotonin agonist um, that's very fairly frequently used to try and stimulate uh, appetite um, as is ciproheptadine it's actually a serotonin antagonist um, but both of these have variable success um, so you know maybe worth trying on a one-off basis um, but certainly not a long-term solution to, to get your patients to eat. Pain um, this is another one of Kirby's rule of of 20 we want to be looking assessing predicting pain levels um that are, that are going to occur in our patient during their stay with us it significantly contributes to morbidity and mortality um pain scoring techniques are now available for cats dogs and rabbits um and i think you know especially rabbits um they're very very difficult to assess their their pain levels and so these scoring techniques can be really really helpful um there Using them regularly can help monitor pain over time, so that can be can be a really good thing to to do. Um, obviously, opiates are a mainstay of um, critical care medicine because they have minimal cardiovascular side effects, um, and they if they are having side effects, then they are reversible with antagonists such as naloxone. Um, Definitely consider constant rate infusions. They provide much more consistent pain relief than intermittent uh, IM injections. Um, and remember that if you are going to use something like a, a patch, then they take approximately 12 hours to come into effect. So you need to be using other pain relief in between time. Um, if opiates on their own are not sufficient, again, most patients aren't suitable for non-steroidal, so you may need to consider something like ketamine or lidocaine and um, MLK transfusions are quite frequently used as a as a way of managing our, our patients' things. So you need to be looking at all the ways that we can manage these critically ill patients if they have severe pain. The other thing is um, consider adjunctive therapy. So cold compresses, bandages, acupuncture, massage, all these sort of things that can... Um, help manage pain in in our patients without the use of of medication um every day we want to be looking at addressing any wound care bandages that are there um obviously ensuring any bandages are clean and dry and continue to provide their desired function without causing sores there um they should be changed whenever soiled or or wet um and yeah, bandages can be used, um, you know, even in the short term to, to help protect wounds um, in that initial stage until the patient has been stabilised enough for surgery to be performed. So remember 
Um, they're a very important tool to help prevent an infection developing it whilst there's an open wound still still there. Um, sometimes edema can be helped with light bandaging. Um, so again, something to remember there. And if we've got large scale bruising, um, I'm not sure how much that's developing. It can be really, really useful to use a pen in order to, to mark out those areas of bruising um, to help monitor that over time. Um, particularly between different personnel, you know, on any critical care patients, there will be multiple um, members of staff helping to, to manage that patient. And so um, things like that can really help to, to monitor changes over time. And the last couple here, um, nursing care. Um, this is of critical importance, you know, in any of our, our patients. Um, they need to still do all the regular ordinary things. So I'm ensuring they're being taken for toileting regularly to make sure that they're staying comfortable um, and being assisted if needed, you know, towels under their tummy to help them walk, things like that. Um, if they are recumbent, we need to make sure that um, any soiling is cleared away promptly um, and that it's not going to cause sores or, or discomfort. Um, tail bandaging may be helpful um, there. Um, and recumbent animals should be turned regularly. Um, they should be massaged and giving passage, passive range of motion activity to try and help keep those muscles um, active. Um, also with the nursing care keeping an eye on that those catheter sites making sure that they're changed regularly checked for signs of infection inflammation things like that um, and the last and this is by no means um, least is just mentally checking that the patient has got a little bit of TLC um, the aim here is to attend to all the little things this not only makes such a difference for your patient it makes such a difference to the owner um, both of these thing, both of these groups, if we can attend those little things, it helps build confidence that we're addressing the other stuff as, as well. Because the owners, they don't know about albumin levels or acid-base balance. They have no idea. They assume you are doing that stuff and they will judge how well you are doing all the other veterinary care based on how well you are providing the, the TLC. Um, so make sure that you're pet has a comfy bed that they have toys available that you encourage and allow owners to come to visit and to talk and to see what is being done and how it is is managed um ensure staff at all levels are handling the patient sensitively um and carefully speaking to the patient kindly um and also try to plan ahead with what you're doing and and consolidate interventions um so that you're not constantly in and out and disrupting and disturbing and stressing out a, a patient um importantly also at night time um ensure that the lights go down um in a busy hospital this can be very easy for for night staff to overlook um particularly because they need the light up to keep themselves awake um, but our patients do need at least some time to sleep and they should be sleeping more um, and so having a chance to have those lights down and a quiet period in the hospital is vital 
to give those patients a, a chance to rest. And anyone who's been in hospital for any length of time will know that that, that is something that when you are ill in hospital, getting a little bit of peace and quiet at night time is, is invaluable. So that comes to the end of Kirby's Rule of 20. I know it's a bit of a long podcast um, and a bit of a whiz through all the um, things to have a think about, but it's worth having that um, list of 20 either printed out on each patient's um, clipboard so that you can just refer to this whilst you're outside the patient or put up in a prominent place so that, um, again, when you've got a difficult critical care patient, you can just mentally checklist your way through it and then you know that you're not going to be missing anything um, in those patients um, so I hope that's been helpful um, as a way of just thinking to um, manage their critical care um, any feedback very much appreciated um, do you use it does it help you in your in your practice um, any other techniques to um, help ensure their critical care um, get in touch. We'd love to hear your feedback. Um, and I will speak to you soon for the next podcast. Okay, take care. Bye bye.